um, by riding on a donkey as fulfillment of Zechariah 9. Um, but then he also wept over Jerusalem because of the destruction that would come upon them because they did not recognize the coming of their God to them. Uh, we covered the curse of the uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree because it did not bear the fruit that it was advertising and the second cleansing of the temple. So there's a repetition there of Israel claiming um, to claiming to proclaim um, God, but then the actual state of the temple stating something very, very different. Um, there were the Greek converts to Judaism who Jesus taught about the kernel of wheat and how the Son of Man must be lifted up. It says in John 12, 37, that Jesus performed many testing signs, but the people continued not believing in him. And then last week we looked at the withered fig tree and how its response to Jesus' curse testified to the authority that Jesus has. Um, and then following that display of authority, then you have um, that authority being called into question by the priests and elders who are trying to present Jesus as unpresentable because he had not studied under a recognized rabbi. So it's very much the world trying to say, this is the structure that we operate under and you will do the same because we're telling you to. And um, that's where Jesus um, asked them first to say where John the Baptist got his authority. And when the priests and elders answered that they didn't know, Jesus answered that he also would not answer where his authority originated from because his authority was the same as John the Baptist. Um, which was something that they were not confused about, but they were basically trying to sidestep the whole, like, yes, 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 the Lord says, but we say, so play our game. And that's Jesus saying, no, no, that's not what we're going to do. And today we're going to pick up um, where uh, we stopped, and we're going to cover the two parables of uh, the two sons and the vineyard. And um, I don't think we'll have time to get to the wedding banquet. So starting from... Matthew 21 and verse 28, Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. So this would have been a difficult message um, to hear. Of these two groups, I think... Um, the tax collectors need additional clarification because um, some of us may be d disgruntled at the IRS, um, but I don't think we have a, a deep national glowing resentment um, of um, their oppression and uh, their injustice. Yeah. Maybe we're working on it. Um, I wouldn't say that you would you would buddy up to Al Capone and be like, oh man, I feel your pain, right? Um, and so, um, where did I have it here? Ah, uh, yes. Um, so there's a special setting that, um, thankfully, because of um, the system of government that we so far still have, um, 
this is where like the role of tax collectors in society is, is, uh, is significant and it clarifies just how much they were resented. Um, specifically, the book of Matthew um, has, uh, deals with someone named Matthew who was previously called Levi and his job was, he was a tax collector. Um, which I think is incredible that like when you, when, when you take in just this section of where he was in life and to have Jesus call him, that he was willing to respond I think is remarkable, but then to have a man who has learned so much and has come so far and has understood the need for grace because of the personal experience that he had. Uh, I think it's just absolutely beautiful that there's an entire gospel that he was then able to participate in and record um, under the Jewish system. Like having a man like that write an entire book of the Bible is like, no, there's no qualifications. Do you know what he used to do for a living? So I'm going to read this section here. Um, Matthew was a custom house official. The Talmud distinguishes between tax collector and the custom house official. The Gabai collected the regular real estate taxes, the income taxes, and the poll taxes. Uh, the Mokes, M-O-C-K-H-E-S, I'm going to leave it at that and try not to further offend through pronunciation attempts. Um, the duty imports, the exports, the toll on roads, bridges, the harbor, the town tax, and a great multiplicity of other variable taxes on an unlimited variety of things, admitting, for, uh, admitting of much abuse and graft. The very word mokes uh, was associated with the idea of oppression and injustice. The taxes in Judea were levied by publicans who were Jews and therefore hated the more as direct officials of a heathen Roman power. Matthew occupied a detestable position of a publican of the worst type, a little mokes who himself stood in the Roman custom house on the highway connecting Damascus and Ptolemais and by the sea where all the boats plied between the domains of Antipas and Philip. So he's very, very much representing foreign governments that are taking the sovereignty of Israel, and he's taking money away from people who are Jews and giving them, uh, giving that money um, to these other powers. The name publican, which applied to these uh, officials, is derived from the Latin word publicanus, or a man who did public duty. So, which was neat because I heard like publican thrown around and until I read this this past week, I had no idea what the word publican meant. But as a good student, I said, I don't know, I guess we'll never learn. So now I've learned. Um, the Jews detested these publicans not only on account of their frequent abuses and tyrannical spirit, but because the very taxes they were forced to collect by the Romans were a badge of servitude and a constant reminder that God had forsaken his people and land in spite of the messianic hope founded on many promises of the ancient prophets. The publicans were classed by people with harlots, usurpers, gamblers, thieves, and dishonest herdsmen who lived hard, lawless lives. They were just licensed robbers and beasts in human shape. According to rabbinism, there is no hope for a man like Matthew. He was excluded from all religious fellowship. His money was considered tainted and defiled. Anyone who accepted it, he could not serve as a witness. Rabbis had no word of help for the publican because they expected him by ex external conformity of, uh, to the law to be justified uh, before God. So because the tax collectors, because of the very activity that they were engaged in, they were just considered unacceptable from the get-go. And they would 
effectively be unredeemable. Um, and, and so like for, for specifically for context, imagine if, I'm just trying to try to use round numbers, if you're working and making $20 an hour, right, at 40% taxes, we're not that far away. So you're doing, uh, you're, you're paying about $8 in taxes, but then that's just kind of a flat system that we have now. But then in order to collect my taxes, Kevin's actually picked up the job and he's like, yeah, I'll do that. And then he adds an additional percentage on top of that. But he has to pay that to um, Porter, who Porter is then also gathering an additional percentage. And then he pays that to Jay. So you basically have all these different groups for this huge region, right? It's almost like, okay, I, um, I've been awarded the contract for tax collecting within Texas but I'm gonna farm that out because my goodness, this place is huge and I don't have that much time to drive around. So each of these regions, you have these smaller concentric circles and as you pass into those concentric circles, you have an additional percentage layered on. So if you've got administrative layers adding on 5% additional taxes because they feel like it and because that's how they're making money, at five layers, you suddenly have another 25% or 65% taxes so you're paying $13 for the 20 that you make. And this is very much the relationship to the tax gatherers that the people of Israel have because they are, it is, it is literally a position that encourages graft and gouging. And even if you went to some of the um, Roman courts to try to appeal this, be like, hey, this guy's, this guy's taking me to the cleaners it's very likely that the person that you're speaking to is actually making money off of that because they may have farmed it out or they're not really gonna defend you because they're looking to pick up the contract next year. And so they're like, wow, really? He's only making that much money off of you. We could probably increase that a little bit. We could probably add another 0.5% or 1% to that. That's a, good, that's a good interest rate for me. So when Jesus says this, that the prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom before you. Again, he's speaking to an audience that's looking exclusively at the external performance, and they would have been shocked. This would have been the same as if we said, you know, like, hey, the restoration of America is at hand. Come see the restored America. Get in line. There's prostitutes and tax collectors who are just gonna fill this place out to the rafters. And we would say, this sounds like a terrible, terrible place. They also would have been offended at Jesus saying, like, how dare you say that the kingdom of God could possibly contain these kinds of people? This is completely unacceptable. And yet, we look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 9. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. So, Again, he is proclaiming a hope that he is going to institute. He is going to bring something to people who cannot actually accomplish the righteousness that they need to have to be worthy. 
And even if the audience doesn't understand where Jesus is going with this, just him mentioning kingdom of God would have perked up their ears. For one, they've been looking forward to the kingdom of God for ages, but also who is someone who has just declared himself recently the king by the act of riding on a donkey at the triumphal entry? It's Jesus himself. And at that point, they were all cheering and they were saying, yes, the kingdom of God. And again, this is this opportunity here where there is a message presented that is primarily aimed at those that are already hard-hearted. And it's very much there to say, like, this is a message and you may not understand it. However, look at the attesting signs and look at the wisdom and the authority with which this is being taught. So you may not agree with the message, but you will then actually, you are being called to reconcile whether or not you understand is that the basis on which you will trust and believe? He is calling them to faith. And it is not in isolation. He's not just making crazy statements, but there is so much attesting evidence to who he is as the son of God that it is a in invitation for them to humble themselves. And that being invited to be humble is something that is really this, this issue for this audience. We saw previously there are some who believed but they were unwilling to testify because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. Um. So this is also where with the kingdom of God, they're looking forward uh, for this kingdom be, to be established, but they are, their expectation their expectation comes from the best of their own imagination. And it is so far below the greater provision that the Lord has. So what they're hoping for is they're hoping for the, the restoration of national sovereignty and to be free from a bunch of these other kingdoms. And so what's going on is that being presented with eternal salvation they are hampered because they are looking for something that is extremely fantastic. They are merely hoping for something that's really, really great. Because the wish for freedom is not bad, it's good. But Jesus is far greater. And so for Israel, the good is the enemy of the best just that the same way that it is for any of us. We can hope for things that are good and great, and we can be involved in pursuing things that are fantastic. However, there is always the opportunity that the Lord says, that is fine, but my word says this, or that he places something on our heart where he says, I don't want you to go in that direction. Not because what you're pursuing is wrong and evil, but because I want to take you somewhere else. I want you to be engaged in something different. And that's the same opportunity here where we look at that sometimes. I know I did with, um, I was at the Hill and I think I was, I was reading a lot of science fiction novels at the time. Um, they weren't vile and grotesque, but it was just the Lord put it on my heart. He's like, hey, just stop that. And I was like, okay. And I, it became like in my emotions, obviously not verbally outside because I wouldn't want to humble myself or embarrass myself like that. But in my emotions, I was like, I, Oh, okay, like I'm pretty sure that you're the one who's putting this on my heart, Lord. 
But emotionally, I was like, but you kind of do need to justify yourself to me. I need to show why this material is opposed to you. And he's like, no, that's not, no, I'm, I'm asking you to do something in obedience. I was like, well, but, but, and, and then it was, I realized it was this, this really just will against will. And finally, I said, I'm like, I, okay, I, I, I don't get it. And I think in hindsight, it was just a distraction thing. And it was a huge blessing because the result was there was the ability to, to pay more attention, to not be distracted and drawn off on just mental road trips into other areas. I, I will call you out. You're okay, Zach. You can come forward. Um, it, was, it was something where he was prompting me but the wrong response was for me to say, like, I will be obedient on the condition that you justify yourself. That is exactly what's happening with so much of this audience here, where it's the God of the universe literally standing in front of them, saying, I'm calling you to obedience, and them saying, I don't know, your shirt's funny, your haircut's weird, I don't like your accent. It's all of these very, ultimately very, very, very petty things. Um, and we know from scripture, he was not the most handsome person in the world. He did not have an inc incredible career. You're a carpenter. You didn't even stutter under rabbi. You didn't study under rabbi so-and-so. Um, and God was careful to present him in that form of humility, not the least because we're called to, to, to follow him in a similar way, that it's not because of status or ability or innate skill but it's simply that we follow because he is the one who is calling us. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And I think this is amazing here because what they're being shown, they're, they're not, Jesus isn't fast forwarding to 1 Corinthians, right? That's still in the future. So he's not saying, like, by the way, this is the work of redemption that I'm doing in a person's soul, but he is effectively pointing to the Holy Spirit's work through John the Baptist, and he's saying, hey, do you remember this thing from back in the day, from Jeremiah 31? He is, he is showing the actual consequence and the outworking. He's foreshadowing it. Um, Jeremiah 31, verse 33 but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. He is very, very much showing them. And he's, he's, he's giving an example of impossibility to say, based on what you know of these people's behavior, does it make sense that they would repent? Aren't they completely full of all evil? And yet, they're being obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. How did they make sure that they would respond correctly? What did they do? What skill do they have that they made sure that they would listen? And the answer is nothing. You can't point to who they are to say, and that's why they're being, that's why they're doing these things. But it is a witness of the Spirit working. And in that, even in that, they're saying, yeah, but, but we don't like it. 
Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Even that, that willingness to show sinners actually receiving John's baptism of repentance did not humble these people. Because that is, that is something that they who had studied so much, it is something that should have shamed and embarrassed them, that they were unwilling, but others were. They who supposedly were better prepared. Any questions or comments on, on that? We're going to go into the parable of the landowner in the vineyard in a second here. Yeah, and, and that's, I think that's, uh, again, going to the fig tree. Why is the fig tree cursed to wither? Because it's proclaiming that it has fruit just the way that Israel is. And then when you get there, there's nothing. Because it's this, like, modern literature shell game where you try to pick up some of these books and you're like, this is just a set of references to other books. I have no idea what's going on. Such and so is to thus and such as whose it's is to what's his name. I got to go read, like, 18 more books. And then the author is sitting back going, I'm so much smarter than you. You couldn't understand any part of that sentence. That's a big part of this here where it really is this nested rabbinical teaching where it's the, um, it's the Brian Regan joke about like the me monster who is just always trying to one-up someone else. It's like, you see you? Yeah, you, me, you, me. You see the difference? You see that? You, me. And they try to do that with Jesus. See, Jesus, you're only this tall, but I'm this tall. Yeah, you see that? See how much better that I am, measurably? That's why I'm important. And, um, and that's, that's so much of John the Baptist's baptism. That's what he's getting at, saying, where is John the Baptist's baptism authority coming from? Because that's where my authority is coming from. And you cannot find it in your ridiculous game of one-upmanship. All right. Uh, Matthew 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall about it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds as at the proper seasons. This is, again, it's a powerful message where Jesus is, 
make sure I can read my own notes here on the margins. Jesus is referring to Isaiah chapter 5 um, and summarizes Israel's treatment of the prophets from Elijah all the way through John the Baptist. And then he adds his own part into the story, which will take place in three days. And I think this is an amazing part here that he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he understands what their past behavior has been. And he understands that despite being literally God himself and part of the Trinity, that they will not respect him. They will not treat him differently. He is declaring to them, you are going to kill me. And there's, there's so much contained in here. The fact that you have um, this landowner, clearly God, um, who has planted the vineyard and dug the wall around it and dug a wine press in it. There's probably many other parallels here as well, but the least of which is his preparation of the promised land and then taking Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, and he is taking them to a land that he has promised to them, and all the infrastructure that they need is there because he has been pursuing that, the people of that land as well the entire time Israel's in Egypt and has been seeking them to turn, and they have refused. And so God is using these incompetent slaves as another picture of his ability and his power um, which is so wonderful when you read through um, <laughs> when you read through their time in the wilderness and how terrified they are of going into the land. Meanwhile, everyone who is in the land is terrified because they know that the Lord is with the Israelites, and they're terrified of them arriving. So you've got two groups, both afraid of each other. B um, the one side, the unbelievers, are afraid of what the Lord will do, and the believers, effectively, are worried about what the unbelievers are able to do because they will not trust the Lord, who is clearly dragging and taking them into the promised land. So the Lord is preparing all of this for them. And he is continually sending messengers for what is his. It is rightfully his. And the fact that after these repeated rejections, you have this incredible grace being gracious in... Um, I've lost my place here. In verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. This is after centuries of repeated disobedience. God continues to pursue these people. That he doesn't send in, he's like, okay, this is what they've done previously, so guess what? We've done this before. Here come the Assyrians. Here come the Babylonians. Here comes the steamroller. Boop, boop. You're done. He doesn't do that. He says, I wish, I desire, and I crave their obedience and their repentance. I crave this relationship with them. I will send my son. I will do whatever I can to get across to them the love that I have. I desire, I will continue to provide for them as I have promised. And then the, the contrast of that desire with the response of the vineyard owners um, the reasoning of the vine growers in this parable is just plain broken. But Jesus is so careful to present that insanity for what it is, right? Because this is the same as me saying, ha, Porter. Porter has money. I know what I can do. I can kill Car uh, Charlie, 
and by me killing Charlie, I become the inheritor. What? I, what? What kind of crazy, like, raider mentality is this? I will cause myself to receive whatever I want from that person by killing their child. And this is how inheritance works. Like, no, it doesn't. It completely doesn't. But they have been in this place of stewards, which is a very, very privileged position. They have been in a position of stewards for so long that they have projected ownership on themselves. They have confused the role that they have. They have confused the provision that the Lord has given them, and they believe that they are the source of what they have received. And therefore, because I am the source of whatever I want, and this is very much that confusing success with skill. Why am I successful? Because I'm amazing. I'm jealous of y'all because y'all get to look at me, and I can't even do that. That's this, that's this arrogance here, right, of, of just, like, in, in what realm, in what realm is this how we rationally think and yet so often act that we believe we can claim things because we wish them? Just... Astounding. I, any questions or comments at that point? Okay. And again, even here, right? So just to, to pause briefly, we're going to go to um, the, the stone which the builders rejected. Um, but to understand the timing of what Jesus is doing, he has arrived during the um, triumphal entry is the time traditionally when the Passover lamb is chosen. And then that lamb stays with the family for that week because their job is to confirm that this sacrifice that they will bring to the Lord has no spot or blemish. Make sure that you didn't get duped and you got a gimp lamb or it's got two heads or something weird as if you couldn't figure that out when you bought it. But there is this inspection period and this is the greatest... Passover lamb ever is being presented during this entire week and he is being inspected for blemish and they want blemishes on this lamb. They want fault and error with Jesus. They try to locate it and then they try to contrive it and it is not possible and it is an incredible testimony of, of our God that for one his character and his nature but also his patience and his forbearance. He is going through the most ridiculous kangaroo court in the world here before the actual kangaroo court between, um, between the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod. Um, and he continues to go forward. The, the power when it says that he did not come to be served but to serve, is, it, is, it is astonishing. Um, because why? What is he getting out of this? He is getting the restoration of mankind. And that value for him to pursue to this degree clarifies just how valuable and how precious we are to him. It is, it is mind-boggling. Um, Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the, the priests and the elders. Like, 
unbelievable. It, this is very much like me looking at Charlie being like, hey, Charlie, there's this thing called the Bible. I'll send you one so you can see what it's like. <clears throat> Did you never read the scriptures? You whose entire pomp and circumstance revolves around knowing these things and debating at great length, have you never actually looked at them? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I'm going to read all of Psalm 119 that he's referencing because it is incredible to see, um, again, because he's throwing out this small reference, the same way that he does with the vineyard in Isaiah 5, Jesus is calling up that entire chapter from Isaiah to their mind. And by, with this small reference of the cornerstone, he's calling to remembrance all of Psalm 118. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Not to put too fine a point on it. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say his loving kindness is everlasting. For um, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Here, very much speaking of that transformation, he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live. In case you haven't figured out that the Son of Man must be lifted up, but that's not the end of the story. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. Jesus' reference here. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. To make the reference here, when they were saying Hosanna at the triumphal entry, it means, O oh, save. And again, he is trying to call to mind this section here from this psalm, this O oh, save. Um, o Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice to the cords, with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love and kindness is everlasting. This is what 
he is confronting these, this audience that's so opposed to him. Yes? Yeah. About pridefulness yeah. and that's very unrighteous, but it's all a faith in the law and themselves as somehow putting themselves over, you know. And so it's all through the book of Isaiah and it repeats the same message in these like fireworks, right? So uh, they should have known this. Yeah. But well, and again, it's always this this desire that it, it comes from a simple, I think, God given way in which we're created. Don't you want to be pleasing to the Lord? Yes. How do you know you are? Uh-oh. Well, he, he says that he's redeemed you, and he says that he has given you his own righteousness. Okay. I don't feel it because I'm at low blood sugar today. And it's this from there. It's this like, are there clear things that are absolutely in disobedience? Yes. But there's a lot of time where it's simply a rest and do the next thing. And the next thing you need to do is very, very boring. And there's nothing in the activity itself that shows you necessarily that you are in the correct place. There is no feedback from your activity that says, be blessed, you're in the right place, you are being obedient to the Lord. We lose that when we do not spend time with believers in fellowship, in Scripture that affirmation of his presence. And that's oftentimes when we're like, okay, I kind of want to create something that I can check off so that I know, like, what's my mileage so far? Do I need to do an oil change? What's the state of my tires? And all this kinds of stuff. We try to project that on our own activity as a way of saying, but I don't want to get something wrong. Okay, the Lord has done something far greater. He has made repentance and redemption possible. But this pursuit of flawlessness, that is, and it, and it comes out of a speech impediment, speech impediment. It comes from a desire to keep the law, but then it also is this means of like, well, how do I make sure that I keep the law? We'll create additional arbitrary layers, this ablative armor to say like, if I never violate these things, then I can't even get close enough to violate the actual real thing, but then we end up forgetting what's going on because the dependence becomes on our activity and what we can measure and the vulnerability before the Lord is lost. Last thing that I wanted to get to. Um, Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So last week, um, 
Kevin, you'd brought up the church taking over something, and Jay, you'd asked if that was um, replacement theology. So, um, because we had this fantastic opportunity here to kind of go over that again, um, for those of you that don't know what's going on, uh, replacement theology, supersessionism, or fulfillment theology. It holds that um, because Pentecost happened, and at Pentecost we had the giving of the Holy Spirit, the church completely, utterly replaced Israel. In other words, Israel used to be special, but then God fired Israel, and now it has no further function or role in God's plan. Um, so under replacement theology, what you do is when you're reading the New Testament and you find references to Israel, you mentally, you mentally swap out Israel and you say the church because Israel isn't supposed to be Israel anymore, but now we are Israel. And that works fantastic as long as you don't read the New Testament. Um, it, it holds up really, really well, but it falls apart super quick. Um, Paul wrote Romans 11, 11 discussing at length how Israel has not been cast away. Um, and if you read through Romans like 9 through 11 and swap out like Israel with the church, it so quickly, like they don't make any sense if that's supposed to be the literal meaning. Hang on. Um, the other section is Galatians uh, 6.16, where Paul plays a, a praise a blessing on those who follow Jesus as well of the Israel of God. And Charlie covered a lot of this with, um, with, the, recent, um, um, with the recent sermons on um, the doctrine. Um, I had to specifically go back to it's recording number 11, if you're interested. Um, a lot of it having to do with premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Um, it gets into a bunch of this as well. Um, I don't want to get into that uh, too much um, because I haven't studied it enough and I'm nearly out of time. Um, but the takeaway here is that Israel and the church are not identical. Israel was never given a pink slip and told to clear out its desk. Instead, and I hope that I'm not unknowingly permitting some other kind of heresy by saying it in this way. Israel remained the chosen of God, but they forfeit the privileged position of being the sole stewards of the gospel. That, that is what has been lost. If I'm allowing something, if I'm not covering enough with words in there, please tell me, um, because I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. It doesn't reject Israel forever, right? It, it, it's a, to me, it's a matter of, of to your point, the right, the, the primary responsibility to witness and to guide. Move from mm -hmm. Israel to the church. Yeah. But it's all for the purposes of saving Israel. Yeah. You know? And I think and that's. Not only saving Israel, but saving the entire world through doing so. Yeah. And, and I think what's what's so easy um, where this comes from is it's that I think we have a understanding of the the awesome privilege that it is to share the gospel and to be stewards of all of the inefficient ways that God could have chosen to do something. I'm pretty high at the top of inefficiency, and yet that He would condescend to use me is incredible, and therefore I must be amazing. I must be so cool, not like those chief priests and elders who, oh, wait, I did this. Okay, never mind. But it's that stewardship, right? It's that, that reflective glory of, wow, if the Lord works through me. And I think that's oftentimes when the Lord works through us. Someone else is blessed, and we don't know what's going on because the blessing is supposed to be for them, 
And the Lord knows that we're not safe to know that we're blessing someone else. That I would, want, I would be tempted to take that glory, to be like, Chase, be blessed because I'm cool. And then it's instead, and, I, and this, is, this is the classic thing with teaching where someone comes up after you and is like, man, that was, that was so good. And you go, really? I, I mean, like your pity is so uncomfortable for me right now. Because that was like, no, it was great. Like, oh, stop, stop. Like, I, I flubbed on so many things. The Lord allows that. He allows our foolishness. And he speaks through it anyways. Because it is simply the spirit that he has placed within us, giving that amen and that agreement to truth. It is an incredible restoration that we have. And I am, I am out of time at 1031. So we will look at, um, I'm going to make a note that we're going to look at um, he who falls on the stone and will be broken to pieces. Uh, we will pick up on that next week. I uh, will pray. Father, we thank you so. We thank you for your love and your pursuit. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for all the ways that you show us and confront us with our own vulnerability that you have created us with so that we might know that we are loved and held. We praise you for your word. We praise you for how it is that you honor and glorify yourself and that you grow us often in spite of ourselves to your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.